ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey, and, and very. I'm going to be all brighten up at the beginning of this, Matt, because this is an exciting thing because we're back doing a podcast here. Yes, we yes. are. Oh, how brighten up we are. It's, it's almost a little like we're doing a breakfast Hi. show. Hey, everyone. Hi. Get out of Hi. bed. Hi. <laughs> we, should, we should work on a show together sometime soon. We should do. Yeah, we should definitely bring that back. Yeah, that would be a great By idea. By the way, apparently we are now on Amazon Music. So if you have an Alexa... You can just shout mayo. Uh, is this some? Uh, apparently, I haven't got an Alexa, but neither have I. If no. you've got one, if you just shout mayo, why? Why that would deliver this podcast as opposed to any of the other programs that I do, I don't know. But I'm told that that is the case. Wow! Anyway. So we've commandeered the word mayo just for this podcast. Sorry about but that. We've done very well. Yeah. Thank you very much to everyone. We need to get on because uh, David Badil is waiting to speak to us. However, thank you very much to everybody who's got in touch to say how much they're looking forward to uh, Matt and I back, being back on the radio. We, in case you missed it last time, we're back on Drive Time on Greatest Hits Radio from uh, March the 15th. Plus, as we made very clear, and thanks to other people who are concerned about it, that this podcast will continue. Yes. Nothing can stop it. Was there something that you no. wanted to mention about William Hill or something? I don't know. Uh, no, I mean, William Hill, I'm still judging the Sportsbook of the Year. Get your entries in. They all get read. Um, but I should. I, I do want to mention a book that I'm reading at the moment, which is, and this is like in the top 10 of, uh, of books I saw yesterday. So uh, many people will already be enjoying it. But Fall, The Mystery of Robert Maxwell by John Preston is outstanding. If you've not picked it up yet I definitely haven't. do it the level of detail in that book is just off the charts and when you look at the back and you see who he's interviewed including Rupert Murdoch including various uh, former prime ministers including members of the current cabinet um, talking about Robert Maxwell it is astonishing astonishing book well worth it for is it astonishing John Preston it's astonishing that's what I right. astonishing by Matt Williams yes. right but are Very we good. actually talking about that book in this podcast well no we're not no, no, we're not. No, are you? Uh, uh, fine. Should we? Should we do the? Should we get to the main business? Let's do that. Business at hand. Yes, please. Very delighted to have David Badil with us. His new book is Jews Don't Count. Hello, David. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm all right, Simon. I'm doing as well as can be expected. I think uh, as that we all are. I hope. Are you doing as well as can be expected? Uh, how are you? How, yes. How well am I expected? I don't know. Yes, I think so. I mean, I'm going slightly. Slightly crazy. I, yeah. I, I'm reading that we might be allowed to go and sit on a park bench with someone else, and I, <laughs> I realised that. But 
but I've been, ex- but I've been, I've been doing that. I, I think I'm breaking. I have been, I have been sitting on park benches with other people. And right. I okay. Those. Well, it still sounds thrilling to me <laughs> that you, we might be allowed to do that. Uh, I mean, I, I, tomorrow I have. I'm doing a little thing where uh, for a newspaper about uh, relations and I'm meeting up with my brother to take that photo right and I don't know if I'm in a support bubble with my brother because we both help to look after my dad who's got dementia but my dad does also have a carer at home so I've never understood whether we're in a support bubble or not but I've always oh. assumed assumed we are so I'm going to meet him in a park and we may be sitting on a bench how far have we fallen? Really? I know. <laughs> I know, it's terrible. <laughs> we, we, we used to go to bars or cafes or restaurants or something. Now we're actually discussing whether we could sit on a park bench with was someone. What happened to the brother. 90s? Oh, yes. No, I know what happened to the crazy days when social distancing was, well, there was very little social distancing in yeah, the 90s, yeah. I tell you. <laughs> But never mind, we're gonna we're gonna get back to normal, aren't we, Simon? One day, before both of us are too old, we'll go out the house. It depends. How are we defining normal? This is a very good conversation, actually. If because if normal is going to a cinema which is full and you're sitting next to people that you don't know mm. and you're having a good time, that normal feels quite a long way away. But yeah. sitting outside in a pub or something feels closer. Well, I'm supposed to be doing. I I, I was doing a show, uh, a stand-up show. Uh, which got stopped as all stand-up shows and all other forms of performance got stopped in March 2020 and it was furloughed until September 2020. It's now been furloughed again till September 2021 Uh, and who knows but I have, I can't quite imagine it now that I will be allowed to walk on stage and there will be audiences sitting together but you never know. And how normal are you Matt uh, in your attic? I'm very normal. I'm I'm socially distanced from. I mean, my teenage son is two floors down, playing God knows what on his laptop. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm feeling very safe. Good that you're safe. <laughs> that wasn't the question. The question was how normal. <laughs> 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 what what kind of normal do you think we? You know, if for me, I've been sitting on park benches with people that I shouldn't be. Yeah. Are you are you behaving yourself there? I am. Yes. No. I'm. I, well, I'm doing. I'm doing far better than you. With your flagrant sitting down on park benches, I've, I mean, I I go for I've been for a walk in the park this afternoon, but um, but I was I was always on the move because I was being uh, super safe. So there's a yeah, song by Jethro Tull. Sorry to bring that up, but there's a song by Jethro Tull called Aqualung that I think begins sitting on a park bench. And now I'm imagining that Simon Mayo. It used to be <laughs> yeah. a sort of wow. Ian Anderson tramp-like figure, but now it's Simon. <laughs> it's very similar. Simon Mayo and Jethro Tull. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but I, I can stand on one leg and play the flute. I'll have you know, so the, the way we all can. Yeah. Anyway, um, D- David is here not just to um, tell me off about uh, park bench behaviour, but also, uh, he, what with this being a books podcast, um, he has this most intriguing, fascinating, extraordinary short book uh, called Jews Don't Count. Just tell us um, the history of this David, in terms of where the... Because it's like a... It is a polemic. It's like an extended essay. Whose idea was this? How did this come about? Well, to be fair, it was the Times Literary Supplements sort of idea, or at least the genre was their idea, because Stig Abel, who used to edit the Times Literary Supplement, came to me about two years ago and said, we're doing a series of 
something that used to exist back in the day. I think people like Orwell used to write them. So essay books, kind of pamphleteer, you know, thought piece books. Uh, and they're meant to be, I think, 10,000 words long, is what he said originally. Lee Child, the writer, had already written one called The Hero. And do you want to, do you want to write one? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. And um, I chose to write it about this subject, which we'll get on to, which is the uh, what I consider to be the... Uh, increasing progressive blind spot as to what anti-Semitism is and when it's happening and when, in fact, progressives are guilty of it themselves, uh, which, in fact, is something I've been writing about in newspapers and on Twitter and elsewhere for quite a long time now, well before it all came to a head with the Corbyn Labour Party. Uh, but I have to say that as I wrote it, 10,000 words started to fade into impossibility. And I was calling him and saying, it's going to be more like 30,000 words. And he was fine with that. So it's still short. Uh, and it still feels like that genre, which is, as I say, a kind of cross between a proper book and a kind of, you know, extended essay. Uh, but yeah, that it was sort of, it was that. And the idea is to write this particular thing. Well, do you want me to carry, just to carry on? Or do you want well, to interrupt there? Yeah. Because I, <laughs> Sorry, I, I thought I'd been talking for too long. I was just about to go to part two of the answer. Didn't know what to do. No, I, I think I think part two of the answer is precisely where you should go. Okay, next. well, part two of the answer is, uh, yeah, I mean, as I say, for a while, I've been thinking about this particular form of what might be considered to be non-traditional, for want of a better word, anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is mainly understood, I would say, by people as something that comes from the far right, from Nazis or neo-Nazis and white supremacists or whatever. And I, in a way, didn't want to write about that, even though I would say, you know, the beating drum of that and the threat of it absolutely is in the background of my book. But what I wanted to write about was at a time when that is increasing and the protections that you might hope that the Jewish community might have against all that, and at a time at the same time when probably, you know, with identity politics and all minorities being much more a site that the left and progressives feel they must protect and must be concerned about and must spot every single offence against, somehow or other it felt to me as a Jew that Jews were being left out of that. Uh, and being overlooked and neglected or whatever. So as I say in the book, it's not a sort of direct type of anti-Semitism. It's not we hate Jews. It's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an absence, a kind of failure to notice or to help or to look after, I guess, Jews from the very people who think that looking after minorities is sort of their raison d'etre. There's a phrase which crops up a lot, and maybe if you could explain it a little bit, it will get to the heart of what you're talking about, which is this idea of a hierarchy of racism. Yeah, well, it's a, I mean, that's kind of an un, unsaid thing a lot. And, and one of the things I talk about in the book is how I know many, many Jews do feel this, that within the progressive uh, idea of, you know, what types of racism really matter, that there are some that feel less important than others. And it felt to me that anti-Semitism is very low on that list. But to say that is actually quite difficult because you can be accused when saying it by some progressives of therefore minimising the threat other minorities have um, or you know, claiming some kind of special pain for yourself and all the rest of it. And I felt it was important in my book to break through that fear and just say, well, whatever you think, this is very much the lived experience, as it were, of Jewish people, that this exists. And uh, so in the book, I use another phrase as well, which is called the sacred circle. And what I mean by that is that I feel that most 
anti-racist, progressive people, in which I would very much include myself, uh, you know, have uh, probably a certain group of people, and this isn't just about uh, race and ethnicity, I would include uh, sexuality and gender and, uh, and disability in, in this group, of groups that they feel are, you know, structurally oppressed by our culture and need to be, you know, uh, considered, need to, that their, uh, the fact that, that our society is not built around these people, that our society is essentially built around sort of white, straight, male people, uh, that they need to be considered and their voice needs to be heard and aggression against them needs to be spotted and rooted out. And they are in this circle. Now, the reason that I feel that Jews are not in this circle are sort of multifarious, but it comes down to, well, one or two very important things. The most important being that, and this is comes from the traditional far right, anti-Semitism is the only racism that has this weird double-pronged thing whereby Jews are considered very low status, like all minorities are in racist terms, so they're considered thieving and lying and vermin and all that stuff. But they are also considered, which is unusual, high status, in control of the world, rich, powerful, privileged, secretly controlling governments, all that kind of stuff. And that means that Jews are the only minority that don't aren't straightforwardly, in some people's minds, oppressed. And you kind of have to be oppressed to be a minority that the you know the left and progressives really care about. And if you're not oppressed, if a tiny part of you believes that myth that Jews are in fact not the oppressed and start to start to think that they might be in fact the oppressors, then you're not in the circle. And in fact, uh, anti-Semitism starts to look to some of to some of these people like punching up, to like sticking it to the man, like a rebellious gesture. It's just, just one more question for me before Matt. And uh, there are a number of points, I think, when a lot of people read this book, David, and they'll start and they'll be, they'll be following it and they'll be thinking, yes, you're absolutely right. And then they'll feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I felt uncomfortable a couple of times. One of the, and I think the first time uh, is when you talk about uh, your film, The Y Word. Mm. And I, I'm a Tottenham fan. I've been, I've been going to Tottenham since 1973, something like that. So I'm very familiar with Tottenham fans' usage of the Y word. Um, but it wasn't really until your film came around that I started to question the use of it, you know, in that kind of Tottenham sense of reclaiming this word. And, and now, uh, you know, I, I get it entirely and I wish I'd read this book many years ago. Um, can you just explain what happens in that short film that you made? Yeah, I mean, I think I should explain the story that's in the book, and it's quite hard to do with the amount of words I'm not going to be able to say. Well, actually, on a podcast, can I? I mean, I don't want to say the Y word, but can I say the swear words or not? Or is that going to be a problem? Are you, yeah, I, it seems to me there are different rules that apply. E even on Americast, you know, Emily Maitlis cusses on a regular basis. Okay, so, so I'm going to... I don't see okay. any reason why you can't. Okay, so, well, I tell a, uh, at the start of the book, I tell various stories that seem to me to be illustrative or examples of Jews not quite getting the same level of concern uh, in our culture. Uh, and one of those, which is almost in a way the, the biggest one, I guess, at some level, is me and my brother go to Chelsea every week, but we did before the pandemic, uh, every home game. And every home game virtually, certainly any home game against Tottenham or any game where Tottenham even come up in some way, like a player who used to play for Tottenham coming on for Aston Villa or whatever, you will get chance uh, based on, I'll say the word, I'm uncomfortable saying it, and part of my 
you know, project is to make people understand that the Y word is as bad as the N word or the B word. But you get this chant of yeard or yeardo happening from Chelsea fans. It is very important for people to understand that the identity that Spurs created for themselves around this word is reflected back very viciously by Chelsea fans and Arsenal fans and West Ham fans or whatever. So this happened one particular game. The crowd all around us, two Jewish men all around us, 40,000 people are all chanting, we hate Yiddos and we hate Yiddos over and over again. Uh, and this is a regular occurrence at Chelsea. It always, always deeply depresses me as a Jew and my brother. Uh, but we've just put up with it for years. This is in 2010. Uh, and then a bloke behind us starts shouting, fuck the Jews, fuck the fucking Jews, over and over again. And eventually my brother got up and said, shut up. And the bloke said, no, you shut up. And we, I thought there was going to be a fight, right? which is sort of like my brother is really not a hard bloke. Uh, but in the end, the guy shut up and that was it. But I thought, no, that this shouldn't be it. You know, we live in a time, this is 2010, where already any form of racism at football grounds is meant to be by stewards shut down and the person responsible for the racism is supposed to be banned for life. We're already in a zero tolerance culture for racism. Nothing. I mean, this is the Jews don't count element. The racism itself is not the Jews don't count element. The Jews don't count element is nothing is done about it. No one is outraged. No one is banned for life. And indeed, when me and my brother decided we should do something about this and try to get a film going, which we did eventually manage to do, and Frank Lampard was in it and Gary Lineker and bless them for doing that. But it was really hard to get that film going and quite hard to uh, convince kick racism out of football who felt they had other stuff on their agenda that was more important and really important it was too. Uh, stuff about black players still getting racism and homophobia and all the rest of it. But it was really hard to get them to understand that this might be a campaign that was equally worthy. Uh, so, yeah, so that was what that was. I, th I think that... Um, speaks to what was uh, going to be my question, which is 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 about um, Jewish people not getting the same consideration, and really that's what you're, you're as you as you've already explained, David. That's what your book is about. It's not about uh, just straight down the line uh, anti-Semitism. It's it's about how uh, progressives talk about um, uh, about Jewish people, and it. Um, it reminded me of something that happened last year. So this year and, and last year, I've been involved in um, judging the Sports Book of the Year Prize. And one book that was entered last year was uh, a book about Muhammad Ali. It was a biography of Muhammad Ali. And there, is, there was a sequence in the middle of the book which was startling in which the writer um, basically was just, um, he was describing a, a room that Muhammad Ali was was training in. And he was talking about the various people in the room who were watching um, Ali um, um, sparring in the, in the ring. And he, all he's doing is he's listing the people who are there. And he's listing them and saying, you know, what the, you know, are they a coach? Are they a corner man? Or are they a blood man? That, that, that kind of thing. And at one point he says, and Bob Arum, the Jewish lawyer, Right. And then moves on and talks about someone else and someone and and, and, and it's absolutely startling because you think just like, hang on what, what what a why is it important that he's a Jewish lawyer because you haven't described the ethnicity or um, or religion of anyone else in that room only Bob Aram the Jewish lawyer and bluntly I think there is there is clearly a nod and a wink there that that's saying Jewish lawyer you know what I mean. I'm, I'm, yeah. and, and you're just going to leave that there as a, as a nod and a wink to the, to the writer. But the second thing that jumps out to you is 
If he had written Bob Arum the Muslim lawyer mm. or Bob Arum the gay lawyer, mm. then my, my instinct is that would have been picked up by an editor. Because we all know that books don't, aren't just written by the, the author and then suddenly appear on the bookshelves. They go, through a, go past a number of eyes on their way to being published. Mm. And my instinct is, as I say, if it had said Bob Arum Muslim lawyer or gay lawyer or, or anything else, then that somebody would have said at some point, do we? Why do we need to know that that person well, is a yeah, Muslim I'm, or gay? I'm just going to. Sl- I mean, you're absolutely right, but there's some just a slight wrinkle I have to add to it, which is what you have to add into that is the particular stereotypes you're working with. Yeah. So yeah. there's a particular stereotype uh, of oh yeah, Jews are sort of hanging around in sport or showbiz or whatever making money off the talent and they're the lawyers or the accountants or the managers or whatever and that's what that writer is doing there confirming that stereotype uh, with a if they'd mentioned for example i don't know uh in terms of a gay person that they i don't know worked in theater i don't like using stereotypes myself but if it was you know someone who uh was writing something about someone who was known for being very theatrical and had put in that information in the same way again that would be confirming the stereotype. So the stereotypes are not always the same. Uh, with a, you know, actually, you could possibly have got away with saying "gay lawyer" because there isn't necessarily that association with gay people, and maybe that was just an interesting thing in that case that that writer put in that that was an openly out gay lawyer at a time when most people were not, or whatever. However, there is no question that saying Jewish and, att- and attending it to a person in that position is saying, as we might expect. There is a Jew here making money off Muhammad Ali, basically. I don't want to make this all about me. I'm just wrote, <laughs> I've written down all the bits that have made me uncomfortable. So, uh, read, reading this book, I didn't know that Dickens, to my shame, uh, had anti-Semitic stuff going on. T.S. Eliot. I hadn't read the amount of T.S. Eliot that David has. Voltaire. Um, Roald Dahl. So let's get to Roald Dahl. Yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm sort of lumping them all in together because, again, to my shame, I interviewed Steven Spielberg for his BFG movie a number of years ago, and I hadn't come across these vile quotes from Ro- Roald Dahl where he kind of, exp- not even he didn't try and hide it, really, but he was quite yeah. open about the fact that he didn't like Jewish people. More, more than that, um, Simon. I, I mean, not only does he not like Jewish people, he blames Jews for the Holocaust. He says even a stinker like Hitler didn't do something like that for no reason. So right. that's blaming Jews for the Holocaust. So I heard uh, Michael Rosen being asked about this uh, on the radio, and he was talking about this idea of art being autonomous, that it's possible to separate the art from from the artist. So if the artist is an anti-Semite, as clearly Roald Dahl was, that it's possible to separate the BFG and the Twits and all the other books that he did, and still enjoy that. Mm. And obviously, it's a principle you can apply it, you know, to Michael Jackson and all kinds yeah. of uh, aspects of life. But is that is that good enough? And do you is it possible to separate the art from the artist? Um, well, I always feel it should be. I would agree with Michael Rosen, except I would put it into a slightly wider context. Uh, so there are some things that I might not particularly agree with philosophically. So I might not agree philosophically that people should be cancelled or whatever uh, if they've said something which we now disapprove of, you know, because they were from a historical context where they didn't realise that. I think you have to be thoughtful and, you know, complex about that and all the rest of it. However... If that is happening, 
across the board to people who said terrible things about black people or gay people or whatever, and it's not happening to someone who said the equivalent things about Jews, then you have to at least ask why that is uh, and sort of forget, perhaps, because that seems to be a bigger question. You sort of have to forget, can you separate the art from the artist and ask the bigger question, okay, so these people are being cancelled. Their work is being really, really questioned as whether we should still be listening to it or uh, paying attention. And yet this person said these really vile things about Jews and everything's fine. Uh, I, my own, For my own sake, the way I think about Roald Dahl is he was, remains, the greatest children's writer in British literature. He simply is. Uh, he you know, sets out essentially how to write classics of children's literature in the modern age. However, I don't celebrate Roald Dahl Day. That's the difference. I'm able to recognise that he was a great writer. I would choose not to celebrate a day dedicated to him because I think that seems to me to speak of exactly what I'm talking about, Jews not counting, because I don't think you would have a day dedicated to someone who had said similar things about black people, for example. Um, and similarly, I'm, I'm not that keen on heartwarming films being made about his home life either. But I still think he was a great artist. Uh, yes, and there's a new movie uh, coming up with Hugh Bonneville playing Roald Dahl, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. And then if I do get a chance to ask Hugh Bonneville a question, then uh, then I will try and make up for lost time. Just is, is another. There are so many areas of this book which are fascinating, which kind of need to be discussed over, over many years as people like me play catch-up. Um, you address the subject of uh, whether Jews are white or whether Jews will consider themselves white, and there's a very powerful passage, David, where you talk about when you're when you don't feel white. And I think the phrasing that you use is Jews are not white or not quite. Can mm. you can you just explain that a bit? Yeah, I mean the question of Jews whiteness, what I call the flickering whiteness of Jews, is very, very important. And I should stress as well that there are Jews of colour and a few of them have got in touch with me uh, and I feel perhaps I don't talk about them enough in the book. There are, there are very many Jews, you know, who, who are actually mixed race. In fact, my own niece uh, is is that person. So I feel that is a flaw in the book. But that aside, um, what I mean is, well, there are two things I mean. One is a concept called Schrodinger's whites. Uh, Jews are Schrodinger's whites. Yeah, the concept is, I didn't invent that concept. I found it online, but I don't know who invented it, is that Jews are white or non-white depending on the politics of the observer, by which I mean for far-right people, I mean for years and years and years, and very much now in white supremacist literature in America, Jews are definitely not white. There's actually, you know, Harold Covington's Constitution for the Ethno-State, which I quote, which is a far-right Bible in America, has an Article 5 in it that Jews will not be allowed to live in America under the new ethnostate because they are not part of the white races. And obviously, Hitler believed that and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, on the other side of the coin, it always seems to me that uh, progressives completely think of Jews as white. And when a prominent person who happens to be Jewish gets to any kind of trouble, they are immediately called, you know, another white man doing that. And no notice is paid to their Jewishness. Uh, and I quote this one person who who's called Jessica Krug, who, like Rachel Dolezal, was pretending to be a person of colour, and then it turned out she was white, but the papers made a point of continually saying that she was white and Jewish, as if the Jewishness added somehow to her whiteness. But the separate thing I talk about, which is perhaps more personal, is I personally think that whiteness, which obviously 
you know, is something that I, I understand that I share in certain types of white privilege. But that idea, that concept is really about security at the end of the day. It's not really about skin colour. It's about the idea that your skin colour gives you, if you are white, security. It protects you from discrimination and dispossession and abuse and, at the far level, genocide. And obviously, those are things that Jews have not had over the course of their history. And in my own history, although unlike my my mother and my grandparents, who did absolutely suffer that very, very high level of, uh, you know, very appalling lack of security and whose family was murdered. I mean, that is my family, but, you know, they had their actual lives destroyed. I haven't had that, but I have had an, a lot of anti-Semitic abuse over the years from, you know, from when I was a kid, people used to throw stones. Other kids used to throw stones at my Jewish primary school. When I went to secondary school, a teacher was overheard saying of me, Jew. And the other one said, of course, to a whole crowd chanting, fuck the fucking Jews, you know, uh, whilst I'm trying to watch football. You know, this is quite high levels, I would say, of not feeling white, if you mean take white to mean safe. David, I, I want to ask you about the role of um, of humour, which is is something that you do um, address in the book. And um, the re- I, one of my favourite films when I was growing up is um, was Airplane, uh, which obviously is written by the Zucker brothers. Yeah. And there is a scene in that movie where uh, the um, uh, one of the cabin crew is going down the plane, and you know, saying. Uh, would anyone like anything to read? And one of the characters said, have you got anything particularly light? And so she hands over this pamphlet, which she says is famous Jewish sport legends, which at the time, it's a a great line. However, um, a few years ago, I I interviewed um, David Bolchover, who is a writer who'd written a book called The Greatest Comeback, which is basically the story of um, Bella Gutman, who was a um, Jewish football manager who escaped the Holocaust and then went on to manage Benfica, and they won the European Cup back-to-back, which is just an astonishing achievement. Yeah. And he made the point, David made the point, of the reason why you... you, So you you make the joke, famous Jewish sporting legends, and, you know, it's a pamphlet. Yeah. There is a reason reason why there were... that Jewish people were so underrepresented in post-war sporting legends and that's because of a genocide yeah and and the the idea that and as i said right at the start this is a movie that was written by um three jewish uh three jewish men and yet it was it was almost this sort of humor of let's just laugh along let's just Mm. play along i just want to ask you about that about about the role that humor has played there well, that's a really interesting question because that's not the usual joke. Uh, as you may or may not know, my basic position on jokes <laughs> is that I think anything you can, make, you can do any joke about any subject, it's not the subject that counts, it counts, it's the joke. Uh, and so as far as Jewish jokes go, my personal feeling is that uh, what people tend to do, and this happened to me very recently, where a, a very nice, very old comedian came up to me and told me a Jewish joke. And the point was... It was a joke about money. It was a joke about how Jews love money. And that tends to be what Jewish jokes are. And I remember being on the Today programme a little while ago and on Radio 4 and 
interestingly, I was it was a thing about Jewish comedy, and I was the only Jew on that. Uh, it was two other people who were just people who felt they knew about comedy. And then we were asked to tell our Jewish joke uh, at the end. Do you have a favourite Jewish joke? That both of the other people told jokes that essentially meant that Jews are misers. And so I deliberately told this joke, which is not a hundred miles from the joke you've just told. So I'll tell it. Uh, a, um, there's an Englishman, a Frenchman and a Jew on a park bench. And the Englishman says, I'm so tired and thirsty, I must have beer. And the Frenchman says, I am so tired and thirsty, I must have wine. And the Jew says, I'm so tired and thirsty, I must have diabetes. And <laughs> you see, I think that joke is OK, because I think, especially in the context of a Jewish person settling it, that it's OK to say that Jews are quite over-worried and neurotic about their health. I very much don't agree that we should never have jokes about, you know, people, the way that certain people are, uh, because I think that not everything is an attack. And I don't think that's an attack on Jews to say that about Jews, especially coming from Jews. Uh, I think that saying Jews are miserly, which a lot of Jewish jokes are, is an attack on Jews. Somewhere in between that is the pamphlet <laughs> of Jewish sports people. And I understand that because, you know, Jews probably aren't thought of as, as having a great, you know, history of legends in any sport particularly. But the point you make, which I haven't really thought about before, which is that that's partly to do with the fact that six million of them were killed in a continent that played football and all other sports is, of course, important. But I don't, in my heart of hearts, recognise that as a malign joke against Jews. No. You you talk about the the, the um, about BAME and you use that and and you discuss which everyone is very familiar now is Black Asian minority ethnic, but that. It's another one of those points where you go, okay, yes, this is a very interesting point here. Nobody, I don't think anybody thinks when they get to the ME bit, the minority ethnic bit, nobody thinks about Jewish people. Um, and I, I ended up wondering what it would take. And presumably this book is part of that. But what it would take for people to consider BAME and then actually think that Jews are a part of that because, indisputably, minority ethnic. I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, the book is, I guess, trying to shift some kind of dial, but I don't particularly feel that's why I wrote it. I wrote it as an analysis. I wrote it to say, this is how things are. This is how I feel about this. You know, I would like it to be different, but it's not a roadmap. I'm not a social planner. I'm a comedian and a commentator and so i don't necessarily expect things to change um in terms of bame i thought it was just interesting because part of my absolute point in the book is that jews should be seen as an ethnic minority and not a religion i mean that's one of the other main things in why i think jews are not or are overlooked by progressives because a lot of the time racism against jews gets downgraded to kind of religious intolerance which is not as bad, in a lot of people's opinion, as racism. And the problem with that is I'm an atheist and I would have got shot by the Gestapo tomorrow. Uh, I would not have got out of Auschwitz by saying, you don't understand, I'm an atheist. And in fact, most Jews, certainly in this country and uh, in general, really, but the majority of Jews are secular. Uh, so the idea that it's religious intolerance is nonsense. No, you know, neo-Nazis don't, don't ask whether you keep kosher before they set light to your house. And so if, you're, if we are an ethnic minority, we should be in that uh, appellation. We should be in BAME. And actually, one of the things that 
has actual effect is that um, there are a lot of initiatives going on at the moment to get BAME people to take the vaccine for COVID because it's, you know, there's a problem with some BAME communities not taking it. There is also a problem in some Jewish communities, but I haven't seen any videos aimed at getting Jewish people to take the vaccine. Um, uh, there are some, there are quite a few moments in this book. Where, uh, that's why I'm thinking it's just part of, this book is part of a process and it is part of maybe uh, changing a lot of people's minds. When you re- when you print in this uh, in this book, John Cusack's tweet, there is a um, there's a, 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 a tweet from him where he has retweeted something which to me looks like something out of the 1930s uh, Germany with an oppressive kind of fat hand with the star of David on the on the sleeve, crushing uh, a bunch of poor people with the words "To learn who rules over you, simply find out." who you are not allowed to criticise, and it attributes it to Voltaire, which you say in the book is not true, and Cusack saying, is it not obvious? And then he, you say, okay, it's different because he actually apologises for this. But I looked at that, it's a bit like the Corbyn um, uh, mural that he uh, got into trouble for. What is it about that that Cusack did not realise was violently anti-Semitic? And the fact that he apologised for it just made me think, well, you're stupid, because mm. if you couldn't see that that was a viciously racist piece of art to retweet, then where have you been for the last 50, 60, 70 years? Uh, yeah, well, I think the key is, and I do, I think, say this in the book, is that a lot of the times for the left, um, their primary urge is to say something rebellious and anti-establishment and sticking it to the man. And there's this unfortunate, for want of a better word, it's actually, unfortunately, it's the wrong word because it's very complicated how it's interlinked, but there is this um, blurring, this association, certainly in in aesthetics, in revolutionary aesthetics, between anti-capitalist art and anti-Jewish art. Um, And that's an example of that. I think John Cusack would say, oh, all I saw was a hand crushing the world's poor. And I'm a revolutionary. I'm a, I'm a left-wing rebel person. And I wanted to show how much I hate the idea of a hand crushing the world's poor from the terrible rich people. Didn't spot, somehow miss, <laughs> in my urge yeah. to make that point, that it's got an enormous Jewish symbol on that arm. And it's sort of amazing that they wouldn't spot it. And obviously, it's quite hard to believe that he wouldn't spot it. But I think at some level, I'm prepared to except that he didn't spot it, because I think that's almost where my book exists, in that in that grey area, in what I call the lack of a Jewish rearview mirror, because the blind spot is very large. Uh, that's why I want to sort of tease that out. Why is that blind spot so large, so extraordinary? But that, that slack that you're prepared to give John Cusack over not spotting the Star of David, I'm, I'm, my instinct is that slack wouldn't be afforded to him if he'd put another no, racial no. stereotype um, in, in that image. I do, no. I do. I mean, so Simon's brought up Twitter, and I do want to talk about Twitter because you, and again, you address this in the book, um, you have as your Twitter bio, Jew, just straight Jew. And even though that is obviously correct, people, and, and again, this is something you talk about, people will say Jewish as they feel that the word Jew is an insult because, of course, I suppose, if I'm speaking for myself, it's because whenever I've heard someone's just use that one three-word phrase or word, three-letter word, it's been meant as an insult. Yeah, well, I talk about that a lot in the book. Um, I, I, it's a sort of reclamation uh, on my part. Uh, it's also 
funny. I think it's a funny thing to do to have that as my biography. But it is a kind of reclamation. Um, I think that, I say all this in the book, but that it's a very strange thing about Jews that all minorities at the moment are keen to reclaim the bad words that are used against them. Uh, and so we know that black people can use certain words and that gay people can use certain words and have made them, you know, in their own usage, uh, a kind of way of championing their identity. But all those words are slang insults that the majority culture has imposed on those minorities. Jew is actually what I am. It's not an insult. It's not a slang. It's it's the word in the OED for what I am. And yet it's still bad, which shows something. I'll tell you what I think it shows. It shows how what we're talking about here is the oldest racism. It's the most deeply embedded in our culture because it's before there was slang, essentially. It's right at the start of all this is a hatred of a minority. And you don't need, majority culture doesn't need to bring up a slang word uh, to make it clear that there's a hatred. So yes, so people say Jewish or whatever. And I quote from one of my own novels to show how fascinating it is that if you change Jewish banker to Jew banker, Jewish boy to Jew boy, the words suddenly become unbelievably hateful, whereas before they were kind of all right. But I think that it's important to, as part of Jewish pride, if you like, and trying to fight all these things, that one is able to say, I'm a Jew, I'm proud of that, you can call me a Jew, and that's all good. And by that, we are fighting this very, very deeply held prejudice. Have you felt encouraged or discouraged by the reaction to the book? Uh, at the moment, I felt enormously encouraged. Uh, it's, it's, you know, lots and lots of people have been very, very nice about it, especially on Twitter. And obviously, the book is quite a lot about social media. But, you know, it's had mainly really, really, really good reaction. Uh, I haven't yet seen anyone who I would consider to be a luminary of the left really engaged with it. Um, I, I've had some skirmishes with some people uh, about it. Mostly I've had silence from those people. Um, people who are not luminaries, so just people uh, who have written to me, I have. I've had people write to me on Twitter and say, I voted for Corbyn, I read your book, I now think maybe I shouldn't have done that or I feel differently about it. There's many things I didn't understand, thank you. And that's come from, you know, died in the wool, as I say, Corbyn supporters or whoever. And that's really nice. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know that uh, I'm going to get a, a proper engagement from, uh, you know, I don't I don't particularly want to mention who I'm talking about because next thing I know, they'll be on Twitter shouting at me. But, you know, from the people who I think really it would be interesting to hear what they think about this. Uh, I do feel, though, so David Schneider, do you know David Schneider? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so David Schneider is, a really, is this brilliant actor and comic actor guy. And he like a few people I talk about in the book, is a very left-wing Jew. He's a Labour Party supporter, stuck with the Labour Party throughout the Corbyn years, you know, is on Twitter always kind of having to deal with a lot of left-wing people shouting at him when he tries to bring up anti-Semitism. And I've sort of said to him, Dave, mate, <laughs> just leave it. Just don't deal with these people. But he really thinks it's important. And he yesterday on Twitter said, I really, really want people to read this book and I really think it will make a difference. And part of what moves me about that is not just I hope it will, but it will be costly for him to say that because he will get more people 
shouting at him on Twitter, refusing to engage and in the stupid binary culture we've set up now, just being angry about it. But he's doing it. He's saying it. And I think that is my sense of the dial moving slightly. Um, and elsewhere, do you have another one of your, just while you're with us, do you have a, a, any more of your fabulous children's books on the way? I do. I've uh, <laughs> just finished the first draft of a book called Child Star, which is about a kid who unwittingly becomes famous. Um, and it's kind of a, it's a, a little bit uh, retrospective in the sense that all my other uh, kids turn up in it, not my real kids. I mean, the other children who are the heroes of my books turn up in it because all my children go to the same school in my books. And amazing stuff has happened to all these other children because magical things happen to them. And in my story in Child Star, this kid feels like, well, I'm really boring and ordinary and nothing ever happens to me and all these other kids, this amazing stuff has happened to. But then a documentary team comes to the school, like a sort of educating Yorkshire team comes to the school. And all these kids go on and on and on about their amazing experiences. And he just tells the camera, I'm really boring and my life is really boring and blah, blah, blah. And people love him for it. And people think he's relatable and he's the one they love. And he becomes really famous as a result. So I'm writing that one right now. Uh, excellent. Well, <clears throat> I love your kids' books because they, they, they have attitude and they are laugh out loud funny. And I think, you, and certainly whenever I've, spoken to you about them or heard you talking about them you're quite hooked into this aren't you i mean you you absolutely love writing these children's books yeah I, one of the things i think and i think we've talked, spoken about this before but is that when i first started writing kids books and i was only going to write one because i only started writing kids books because my son said to me dad why doesn't harry potter run away from the dursleys and try and find some better parents and it gave me the idea of a world in which children could choose their own parents i thought i'll just write that and then it did so well that um, I got asked to write more. And But then what I thought was, okay, I am of the belief that children are much funnier than they used to be. They have much better sense of humour than they used to be because I've seen it in my own children. And I know why that is. They, I grew up watching The Magic Roundabout. They grew up watching The Simpsons. It's quite straightforward. Exactly right. They've had a proper education in comedy. And by the age of eight or nine, they're already sophisticated and hilarious. And so that allowed me, I think, to write the kind of children's books that I would want to write that were, I think, properly funny, except without swearing. Um, so uh, so I have, yeah, it's sort of been a really, really enjoyable thing. Can I ask, by the way, while we're here, where is the film of your really brilliant book that I... Oh, Mad I, Blood. Yeah, where is the film? Well, well, so, well <laughs> as far as I am in a position to answer that, um, uh, it is still uh, it is still happening. There is a director who signed on. There is a new screenwriter. So there was a screenplay. There's now a new screenwriter who's working on it. And I am when I speak to the producers, they are confident. Um, about it happening. Although I would think uh, a film that has to be set in an overcrowded prison is not the first no. one that's going to make it past the COVID uh, <laughs> oh, restrictions. But, um, but, I, but they still seem to be, I mean, they've had every, every single opportunity to drop it because, you know, uh, what with one thing and another. But, you know, so I still, I, they still, still seem to think that it's going to happen. So I think I that's am... brilliant. I mean, I think it. I mean, it's a great book, Simon. But it's also so clearly would make a great film. So I, yeah. I, I understand what you're saying about the COVID uh, issues, but 
you know, there's CGI, isn't there? <laughs> you know, sort, tell them to sort it out. I'm Have two, a- two actors C- and a lot of CGI inmates. <laughs> I'm just going to send them a note. Says, have you ever? Have you actually? Have you actually thought that maybe CGI is the answer? Yeah. Uh, excellent. Okay. Well, look, David, it's fa- fantastic to talk to you. Uh, Jews don't count. Uh, is David's book, and when's the children's book? Uh, the new children's book will probably be out. They always come out sort of October time, but I've only just finished the first draft. So there's all the illustrations and all that to do, uh, which I don't do, but are to be sent to me. Uh, so yeah, October, hopefully, child star. Uh, David, thanks very much. Maybe we'll talk then. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, We have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.